What do you think of when I use the word sacrifice? What comes to your mind? Many years ago, I heard the story of William and Mary Tanner in happier times when life was very, very simple. When husbands would take strolls with their wives, they were out walking. And at a time when the railroad tracks served as the divider in the town, they were walking near the railroad tracks and Mary's foot slipped and wedged itself between the rail and, and the wooden crosswalk. And she tried frantically to pull her foot free as the sound of the approaching train was heard and there were only moments left and William struggled to free his wife, but to no avail. And Mary begged William to go. And as the train came closer, and as the whistle screamed and the brakes shrieked, Will held her in, her in his arms. He positioned himself between the train and his wife. And people shuddered in horror. And one witness said that just before the engine hit them, Will, as he positioned himself, threw his arms around his sobbing wife and they could hear the brave man say, I'll stay with you, Mary. I'll stay with you. Sacrifice. Love. The story reminds me of Jesus who loved us with a love that would compel him to embrace a cruel Roman cross. And Jesus would position himself from the full force of wrath and sin and this oncoming locomotive called death and hell. And death came hurtling at him as he hung on the cross, taking the full penalty that we deserve. He heard the screams to save himself, to come down from the cross. But in order to save others, he chose not to save himself. And sandwiched in between the plots to kill Jesus comes this story of preparation and sacrifice. A woman will pour very expensive perfume over the head of the Savior. And what emerges as a compelling portrait of worship and of sacrificial love. Long ago, a pastor entitled his message on this passage, Love in a Frame of Hate. I almost stole it. The woman's name was Mary. We know that from John chapter 12, verse 1. It was an act of love and sacrifice that was accepted by Jesus, but criticized by Judas and others. Look again at verse three. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon, the leper, as he sat on a table at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it out on his head. Bethany is the town that is east of Jerusalem. If you were with me in Jerusalem and I could point to you the eastern gate and the front of the temple, we would turn around. We would pass the Valley of Kidron. We would walk up the Mount of Olives as we would continue to go east. We would find ourselves on top of a of a plateau 
As we would make our way east, we would be in the town of Bethany. And Bethany means the house of sorrow. Or we might even use the word misery or depression. And they're at the house of Simon the leper. And I suspect that it was an area where not only Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived, but this man called Simon the leper. And we're not told anything about him other than he has this house in Bethany. We know that Jesus stays in Bethany and we know that he frequents the the house of his friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And we know from John's gospel, John chapter 12, verses one and eight, Jesus is a guest of honor. And so is Lazarus, who's been brought back to life. And when it says that as they sat at table, it really means recline. They didn't have Big tables like we have it. They would put out a mat and they would put out rugs and they would lean, if you will, and they would all have been resting, if you will. Jesus, we also know these events are recorded in Matthew 26, verses six through twelve. The anointing in Luke chapter seven, verse thirty six is a different event. But we also know from John's gospel that it's six days before the Passover. And that has caused some people some concern. But really, Mark doesn't always put things in chronological order because he's going to insert this story in a thematic fashion in between the plots as he begins to remind people that Jesus, even though there is a plot to kill him on one hand by the religious leaders and a plot to turn him in by Judas in between is this picture of sacrifice, this picture of love and the flask of alabaster would have been a vessel that literally would have been carved from a very soft stone and it would have had a large neck which would have been broken when its contents were used. And Spikenard translates an adjective, nardos, And when used with polyutimos here, and in John chapter 12, verse 3, polyutimos is a word that's related to another word, pistis, which means faith. It was a word that meant to trust in, rely on, cling to. Depending on how the word was used, it came to mean trustworthy, not cheap, not an imitation. And when it's used in relationship to this kind of very precious ointment, it means not a knockoff. This is not Walmart perfume that has Elizabeth Taylor on it, but you know it's really made in China. This is this is the real stuff. This is genuine, unadulterated The Greeks and the Romans would have been really familiar with this perfume. It originated near the Ganges River. If you go up the source of the Ganges and you follow it in the Himalayan mountains along the slopes grows this precious plant. And when you break the plant, it smells like honey and pistachio. And I got to tell you, doesn't pistachio sound good right about now? Now think about it. Lazarus is there who had previously been dead for four days. Simon the leper was there who clearly would have been a part of a community that was isolated and segregated. 
So how and why did she come by this perfume? And when I was reading the text again, I was reminded not only is she the sister of Lazarus, but why didn't she use it when Lazarus, her brother, had died? How did she come by it? What was it for and what was she saving it for? Was it a gift from her parents? Was it a part of her inheritance? Was it a part of her dowry as she was waiting for the future? Was it set aside for her own burial? We probably won't know the answer until we ourselves get to heaven. But whatever else it was, whatever else it was, and however else we can think about it, it was the most precious thing she possessed. It was the most expensive thing that she had, and it represented her future. She was going to give to Jesus in the most significant fashion what she had set aside for herself, for her future. And she anoints Jesus, and she doesn't leave this to strangers, and she doesn't leave this to servants. She will anoint Jesus herself. We know it from this passage and from the passage in in John's Gospel. Here we see that she puts the ointment on his head. In John's Gospel, we see that she puts it on on his feet, and she uses her hair as a cloth to rub his feet. And as you can imagine, the room would have exploded with the fragrance. And it would have filled the room. And it would have filled the door. Think carefully. She comes to the conclusion that Jesus merits the best gift possible. And we have every reason to believe that she spent long hours with Jesus, with her sister Martha, and with her brother Lazarus. And Jesus had brought her brother back to life. Just like Jesus brought you back to life. Some of you have husbands and wives, you have children, you have family. You understand what Jesus has done for you. You understand what it means to live a life of poverty or scarcity or depravity. You know what it means to live a life of addiction. And then Jesus comes into your life and into your heart and he saves you and he rescues you and he forgives you and he cleanses you and he reconciles you. And so is there anything Anything that we could possibly withhold from Jesus. And the fragrant mixture is poured on his body. And so why is she doing this? And again, I think that the simple answer is to demonstrate love. I think that one of the other simple answers is to demonstrate an act of worship. Because remember, in that culture and in that society, it would have been, it wouldn't have been unusual. It was customary that when you had guests over, that you would anoint them with oil. You would provide some respite for them. Jesus has done so much for her. And so he is to be honored and worshipped. And so why does she break the neck of the fragile container? You know, at Christmas time in particular, I was talking in the first service, my wife, she'll get these extravagant gifts with beautiful wrappings and she loves the paper and she loves the bow and she loves the gift bags and she'll take the gifts back. She has a great big garbage bag full of gift bags and wrapper and ribbon. But why break this, rendering it useless? Because there's some things that are so sacred 
and so special that they can never have more than one use. You don't share a casket. When you have a loved one, you bury them and you don't dig up the casket over and over again and reuse it. And this is a sacred container that was meant to be used only once. And what else is happening? Is there some sense of foreboding? I think most of you know that women can be very intuitive. They understand things. They see things. They sense things. Is it possible that she sensed something horrible and terrible was about to happen? She had heard with her own ears when her brother lied dead in the grave. Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he, he live in me. She witnessed with her own eyes her dead brother come back to life. She had heard Jesus say to the disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be taken and that he was going to be arrested and that he was going to be killed. And but for some reason, she seemed to understand what everybody else did not get. Did she give this costly and sacrificial gift to to let Jesus know that at least one person loved him, one person believed in him, one person wanted to encourage him? Sometimes selfless love ignores the cost and pays the price to demonstrate that love and true love will surrender precious possessions. I had read the story of the Queen of Sweden who... Sold her jewels, the crown jewels, in order to equip her country with hospitals and, uh, and uh, orphanages. How different from the Affordable Health Care Act, huh? She sells her jewels in order to minister to her country. Our leaders sell our future. One day, the Queen of Sweden visited a convalescent home that was in part bought by those jewels. And with tears of gratitude from a bedridden woman, she came up out of her bed, fell on the royal hand, and the queen started sobbing and said, God is sending me back my jewels again. She understood about value. She understood what was important. But sometimes sacrifices are scrutinized and criticized. Look at verse 4. Read it for yourself. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? It's interesting to me how insensitive and selfish people can be with other people's gifts. Costly and selfless love is sometimes questioned. Even in the story that I gave at the beginning of this message, some of you are thinking, you idiot, why don't you leave? Save yourself. You both don't need to die. The word indignant translates a very long Greek word, agonak, to, on, taste. You might recognize some of it, We get the word agony from the beginning of that word. It means to ache. 
It means to sorrow. It means to be vexed. It means to be greatly disturbed on the inside. I also want to draw your attention to the the, the word translated wasted. The Greek word is translated perdition. In John chapter 17, verse 12, where it's a reference to Judas. Depending on the context, it was a word that meant ruined. No good. Judas is a classic example of a wasted life. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment as we contrast one woman who worships and one man who betrays. One lives selflessly. One lives selfishly. Judas becomes the very definition of a wasted life. He wastes his talents. He wastes his opportunities. And we learn from John's gospel that he is the one who initiated the conversation about the poor. But John points out it wasn't because he was really interested in the poor. It says that he kept the money and he wanted to keep it for himself. He's the ultimate waste. And he will waste his life. And he will waste his future. Mary worships. Judas betrays. I want you to just ask another question of the text. Why were the critics so disturbed? Why is this so important to them? It was customary to anoint honored guests. Again, the criticism comes from those who saw the gesture As too generous, too unnecessary, too thoughtless. For some of them, they think it's foolish and and senseless. They're going, yeah, yeah, why not use cheaper oil? And again, whenever a Christian makes a sacrifice, there's always critics. There are those who question the believer's character or their love or their commitment. Unbelieving husbands, unbelieving wives who have whose husbands and wives and family give gifts to the church or give gifts to angel tree or give gifts to gospel for Asia. They think it's extravagant and, and wasteful. Why would anyone sacrifice money and possessions and comfort and pleasure and popularity or partying or prestige? In other words, it doesn't make sense. Why would you give something away that you could spend on yourself? There will always be those who say that the believer's sacrifice has gone too far. They feel like such a commitment is either unnecessary or too extreme. And some people will ask the question, where do you draw the line? It was asked me. It's always asked of me. Even in, in the open, at, the, at the first service, a lady came up to me and said, where do you draw the line? And I, I put the question back to her, where do you draw the line? You see, we can draw safely within the lines of selfishness. We seem to keep the crayon right in the box marked me. But when you start to draw outside of the lines... Sometimes we're not so selfless. Where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at ridicule and blame? Do you draw the line at sacrifice or pain? Where do you draw the line? What is it that Jesus is asking for? 
that you're refusing to let go of? Is it your future? Is it your past? And look at the criticism in verse 5. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given, well, (laughs) to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Again, it was common during the Passover to focus on acts of charity and benevolence to the poor, just like it's fairly common even at this time, where you take an angel off an angel tree, where you put a toy in a a bin marked Toys for Tots, where you see the kettle person ringing the bell and you drop in a few extra quarters. You know, this is the time to think about the children in children's hospital. This is the time to think about the less fortunate. This is the time to minister to children with autism. This is the time. This is the time. And it wells up inside of you. And that was the time. And when it says, and they criticized her sharply, the verb, again, a very long Greek word, Embry, mayo, may I. It is a word that descended from what's known as onomatopoeia. When you have a, a word that sounds like the thing being described, we have a word like whoosh. This was a word that mimicked the snorting of horses. That's the word here. It meant to snort like an animal. And so when it says, and they started snorting, they were so upset. 300 denarii. By the way, that's a fairly generous sum. It was an average day's pay for a labor with a denarius. One silver coin. You could buy two loaves of bread. You could buy two cups of wine. You could buy a place to stay. And so do the math. More than 300 means that if you were careful with the money, it could last you for an entire year. Would you be willing to sacrifice a year of your life for Jesus? If Jesus asked you, if Jesus said, I want you to set aside one year for me, just one year. And I'm going to use you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to use you for my glory and for your good. I'm going to use you and the gifts and the callings that I've placed inside of you. Would you be willing to do it? Would you criticize a young man or a young woman who decided to take a year off and go to Mexico and minister in an orphanage or go to India and teach at a Bridge of Hope school? Or would you see it as a gigantic waste of resources and time? The sacrifice is kind and lovely. Look at verse 6. It says, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. There's not often in the New Testament where Jesus rebukes someone. He is so kind. He is so generous. He is so patient. But here he rebukes the complaint. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
You know, for, again, the honest person who looks at verse six and reads the question, let her alone. Why are you troubling her? This is a searching question for everyone who feels comfortable persecuting and ridiculing sacrifice and generosity. Stop it. You're being too generous. Stop it. You're being too generous. Jesus is saying, she's done a good for me. And by the way, there are two Greek words that are typically translated from good. The first is agathos. It means a moral good. Here in the text, Jesus says, she's done a kalos. It's not just moral good. It is something beautiful and pleasing and lovely. Kalos meant good combined with lovely. It carried the idea of something being striking and appealing and attractive and pleasant. I think of the word splendid. She's done something beautiful and splendid, attractive and pleasant. In a real sense, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. She's done something beautiful for me. There are lots of reasons why people give time, talent, treasure, They give money to the church. They give money to food banks. They give money to Denver Rescue Mission, Angel Tree, Gospel for Asia, um, Prison Fellowship. You name it. There's just so many wonderful opportunities, generous opportunities. Why do people give? Some people give because they love to give. It's a gift and a calling on their life. It's a part of their spiritual makeup. Some people give out of guilt. Some people give out of love. Some people give because they think that they're doing God a favor. Some some think that they're earning brownie points in heaven. There's all kinds of reasons. Selfish reasons. Selfless reasons. But God knows the truth, doesn't he? He knows the truth, even when you don't and even when I don't. Jesus says the person who loves him and honors him has done a beautiful thing. I want to ask you another question about the text. Do you think that there was a moment when Mary cringed? Maybe her eyes filled with tears. She cringed at the criticism. She she withdrew from the outburst. Is it possible that she was upset at the criticism? Was she hurt by the insinuation of the critics? In the sight of God, Mary retained what she had sacrificed and the critics lost what they refused to surrender. Oddly enough, only people with spiritual discernment, only people who really know God, only people who really love Jesus, only people who know God and love Jesus can understand the statement. If you want to keep your life, you have to lose it. And in order to find your life, you have to give it away. How is it possible in the New Testament that keeping means never having? And how is it that giving means possessing it forever? 
How is that possible? How do you do the math? How do you come up with giving is better than receiving? Until you begin to understand exactly what the Bible means and what Jesus says. When a person is motivated by love and when they're willing to embrace sacrifice, that's what attracts the attention of the Savior. If you've ever asked the question of your husband or your wife, if if you've ever said to yourself, I wonder how I can get her attention. I wonder how I could get this guy to notice me. If you've ever asked the question, I wonder what attracts Jesus' attention. It's selflessness. It's sacrifice. It's worship. (laughs) Mary was driven to express her faith and her love in the most meaningful way that she could come up with. She did this by anointing Jesus with the most precious possession that she possessed. And the woman discerned a golden opportunity to pay tribute and worship the Lord. And when a person is motivated by faith and love and is willing to embrace sacrifice, that is attractive. In the book of Revelation, we have Jesus saying to the church in Revelation 2.19, I know your works. I know your love. I see your service and faith and your patience. And then he repeats the word works. I see it. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. And in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24, it says, and let us consider one another to provoke each other to love and to good works. And so the sacrifice is also a timely sacrifice. Look at verse 7. It says, for you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wished, you may do them good. But me, you don't have always. When Jesus says that you have the poor with you always, it isn't just simply a prophecy that poverty and even persistent poverty is going to be a long-term problem. I think it's more than that. With only a few precious days left before Jesus' arrest and execution and burial, the woman wanted to show kindness while the opportunity presented itself. And by the way, I think you know this, that some opportunities are time sensitive. They have a shelf life. They have an expiration period. There may be only one brief fleeting moment where you get to smile. Or throw your arms around someone who needs comfort. Or to provide grace and mercy and love. Opportunities come and go. Some return. Some don't. Jesus isn't criticizing gifts to the poor. He's not even pitting worship against generosity. When Jesus says you have the poor with you always, he doesn't mean abandon the efforts to help the poor. We know that a hand out is exactly the right thing at at certain points and a hand up is the right thing. Do you know what liberals and conservatives have in common? Both are willing to say, let's help the poor. 
The conservative? Give them a hand up. The liberal? Give them a hand out. <laughs> sometimes a hand out is exactly the right thing, and sometimes a hand up is exactly the right thing. And sometimes the liberals and the conservatives need to understand that the goals and the methods can sometimes merge when people are wise and selfless. I heard the story long ago of a Christmas day where a man and his wife and his children decided to go into the neighborhood and sing Christmas carols. And the wife and the children dutifully followed uh, husband and father and they went up the street and they went up a driveway and they came to the door and there was this disheveled woman and she goes, look, you guys, you need to come back. Uh, the dishwasher's broken. The plumbing has gone on the fritz. I've got a bunch of people coming over for Christmas dinner. Could you just come some other time? And Bing Crosby said, OK. Yeah, only a few old people like me even know who Bing Crosby is. Some opportunities only come once. We're given a limited opportunity to demonstrate love, to demonstrate faith, to demonstrate worship and sacrifice. And so we have a privilege. Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. And so she gives the opportunity to care for his body in death. And by the way, when you look at that passage and you understand that she is preparing his body for death, you realize that the New Testament says that we are joined and fitted together. The Bible says that we being many are one body. We're joined. We're fitted together. We minister to one another and serve one another and encourage one another and provide for one another. And see, the reality is when you give that hug and when you give that smile, when you provide comfort and prayer and praise at exactly the right moment, you're doing something amazing. In Ephesians 5.16, it says, redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Redemption, of course, means to purchase or to buy back. And with every wicked day and with every evil day and with every sinister day comes an opportunity for us to purchase it for Jesus' sake. And then it's a consuming sacrifice. Look what it says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She's come beforehand. To anoint my body for burial. She took what she had. Now remember, she took what she had that was represented in that alabaster flask or that alabaster jar. Remember, she takes what she had, but almost certainly it represents the thing that she has the most attachment to that has the most significance that has probably the most meaning concerning her future. Mary's love did all that it could. And Jesus says, perhaps the most remarkable thing that he ever says in the New Testament about anyone. She's done what she could. How many do you know who can say that? I can't. If I said to you. 
I've done everything that I can for my wife. I've done everything that I can for my children. I've done everything that I can for this church. I've done everything that I can for the minister, for the ministry. I should drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira for being such a liar. And the moment you open your mouth and you say, I've done everything that I can, it's okay for you to say it. What's really wrong is when you don't really mean it. And by the way, I'm not saying give all that you can. That is not what I'm saying, because the context here isn't give everything that you can. The context here is don't criticize others for doing that. They've done all that they can. When a person says, I'm going to devote my life to Jesus, I'm going to sacrifice for Jesus, I'm going to take the, the, the things that I've done and, and earned, and I'm going to use it for, for Christ's sake and for the kingdom's sake. That's the context. Do we even dare ask ourselves to devote even anything for God's glory? No wonder Jesus said, but don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust corrupts, where thieves can't break in or steal. Do we really care what others think or say? Because we give to the Lord, because we pray to the Lord, because we praise the Lord. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say, He did everything he could. She did everything that she could. You see, the praise of Jesus will more than compensate for every unkind, harsh, critical word that you hear from your husband or you hear from your wife or you hear from your children or you hear from people who think you're being off the charts. Gracious, generous, sacrificial. The anointing of Jesus pointed to his death and his burial. Jesus says that, so we know that that's what it means. The bigger question is, did Mary really understand that? Did she genuinely understand that? Did she grasp what others didn't grasp? Did she understand what other people for whatever reason didn't under understand and i'm going to suggest to you that the environment was charged that everyone believed that an earthly kingdom was coming clearly they have ideas about jesus they believe things about jesus they saw him open blind eyes and deaf ears lazarus is sitting at the table they know that he has supernatural powers but what is the truth about this guy Jesus said that her love and faith and the anointing of his body pointed to his death. The sacrifice becomes this witness of anticipation. She's witnessing to the Lord's death by looking forward to it. Hers was a witness of anticipation. Ours is a witness of fact. We don't look forward to the death of Jesus. We look back. We already understand Jesus has done everything. Jesus has done everything. Jesus has gone to a cross. He's died the death that we deserve. As a matter of fact, 
Paul saw the death of Jesus this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his or commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is giving going to make Jesus' death and resurrection any less true? No. Is it going to make it more true? No. You can't undermine what Christ has done. The only thing that you can do is participate in what God is doing now. And what the Lord hopes to do in the future. As a matter of fact, that's what it says in verse 9. It's a rewarding sacrifice. Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be a memorial to her. Now, think about this. Assuredly, when Jesus says assuredly, it means what I'm about to say to you is positively true. Wherever this gospel is preached, and I'm going to suggest to you that wherever it's been preached and wherever it's been believed, people have read Matthew and they've read Mark and they've read John and they understand and they've been invited to smell the sweet fragrance of this woman's sacrifice. You can smell it at the table. You can smell it at the door. You walk out the door and all of a sudden the sacrifice, the fragrant sacrifice begins to fill the street and then it fills the the world. And we begin to understand something. Jesus said it would be memorialized. In the whole world. And the stories repeated. Wherever the gospel is read and believed. Mary's love. Mary's faith. Mary's worship. Mary's sacrifice. Was rewarded. But also her courage. Why do I say courage? Because remember. It's devotion. In the face of criticism. Jesus is not going to allow. That kind of love. That kind of devotion, that kind of sacrifice to go unrewarded or unremembered. The theme of sacrifice runs throughout the scripture and sacrifice, of course, is the ground of God's grace and blessing. As a matter of fact, the sacrifice of Jesus in the New Testament is described as a necessary sacrifice, an offered sacrifice, a removing sacrifice. In Romans 8, 3, Paul says what the law couldn't do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and by a sacrifice for sin. Condemned sin in the flesh. In Hebrews 7.27. Who needs not daily to offer up sacrifice. He offered up himself. In Hebrews 9.26. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It was necessary. It was offered. It removed sin. But it was something else as well. Perfect. Accepted by God. In Ephesians 5.2, it says Jesus has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. In other words, Paul uses the metaphor of a fragrant aroma. And that's what sacrifice does. It makes everyone and everything smell sweet. So what can we do? My answer might surprise you. Because the truth is, 
It's not more gifts that I'm looking for. We can love Jesus. We can pray. We can praise. We can live holier lives. We can do more for the salvation of others. And let me just be clear here. Your love for Jesus and your prayers to Jesus and your praise to Jesus and your life lived for Jesus will not go unrewarded or unremembered. Because the truth is, like Paul, it isn't the gift that I'm looking for, but rather the reward that's going to be set up for you in the not too distant future. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work, because you have everything that you need to know Him, to love Him, to praise Him, to serve Him. I'm just asking you to do it. Not just simply for reward. And not just simply for remembrance. But so that you can fill the lives of the people around you as they smell the fragrance clinging to your lips. Clinging to your clothes, clinging to your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that the sacrifice of Jesus has taken place in the past. And Lord, we know that we're experiencing the benefit in the present. But, Lord, we pray that selflessness would replace selfishness and that worship and sacrifice would be what we long for in our lives. Lord, we know that for some people who are unemployed or underemployed, giving more isn't just it's just not a, it's not possible. But, Lord, for the person who wonders whether or not they have something left to give. Lord, I pray that they would remember the statement that we're not to measure our life by the wine that we drink, but in the wine that's poured forth because love's strength stands in love's sacrifice. And he or she who suffers most has the most to give. Lord, we, we pray that our deprivation would become somebody else's provision. Lord, we pray that our prayers and our praise would be such. Lord, that you would be glorified. That the kingdom would be expanded. That lives would be changed. And that the work would continue. The work of grace. The work of forgiveness. The work of mercy the work of redemption. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand.